Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super excited to be talking about evidence-based drug policy. We have Dr. Larissa Mayer joining us on the show. Hello. Hi, Alan. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Very excited. This is going to be an epic episode. We have yet to really dive deep into this subject specifically. For those that don't know Larissa's background, she's a Swiss psychologist and postdoc research fellow at the University of California, San Francisco, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. Prior to this, she was appointed as a consultant in drug use epidemiology at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. She received her PhD in psychology at the University of Zurich in Switzerland and is a member of the core research team of Global Drug Survey, aiming to make drug use safer regardless of the legal status of the drug. And you can find the links in the bio to her profile at UCSF as well as her LinkedIn and Twitter and the globaldrugsurvey.com website. All right, Lisa, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Well, as we all know, the world is changing and what I hope for is, of course, any positive change. So I see a lot of positive changes happening, like people coming together, sitting together at a table and talking, getting into dialogue, communicating. But at the same time, there are still lots of inequalities that have to be addressed. And I strongly believe that we can do that together and that we need more science to actually um, also help people understand what ways are functional to actually address inequalities in a beneficial way. What ways do you think science can best address the inequalities? Well, first of all, it's to help them detect them and also help um, detect which system level variables actually increase uh, such existent inequalities and then in the next step think about like how we can best prevent this. Also, when we look at current discussions around AI and the inclusive future of AI, this becomes very important. Yep. You know, science can help us save the world. This is so, so true. Only if it gets hurt. If it gets hurt? Yeah. Hurt. Heard. Only hurt. if people listen. Oh, if it gets heard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Science it definitely needs to be heard. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's so hopefully the dissemination of good media content can help as well get it better heard. Yep. Um, who were you growing up and how did you get interested in psychology? Teach us about you. Well, when I was a small girl, I was always like curious about the world and I asked my parents a lot of questions. So already then I wanted to understand the world, not just why the sky is blue, but also especially I was interested in, uh, in like inter-human relationships and how people engage with each other, how people made each other happy or angry or like all the different kinds of emotions. And very early on, I also learned how it feels like to be rejected by a group when I was like skipping a class and was suddenly with the older ones. Uh, it was really hard to become part of that group. And moving on, I was seeing that substance use was actually community building and not destroying communities. So this helped me understand um, why certain people would use drugs to actually belong to a certain group that they admired. So that was like the very beginning of my like substance use research career, if you want so. But the overall interest in science and explaining things that matter to us was always there. Yeah, that the sense of belonging that's you that's sometimes missing, especially in some of uh, our issues with the current social fabric that we're in, that 
that the, it's missing that link of like the family values and the belonging and the uh, inclusive fitness, these types of things. So sometimes the use of drugs is like frequently about belonging. Well, it depends because again, like the majority of people who use legal or illegal drugs, they use them probably for social reasons or reasons of self-medications. So we can almost say that all the kind of drug use is related to connectedness and if not connection to one another, then maybe connection to the universe. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so, okay, so substance use um, can be for um, lack of uh, connection, interconnectedness to each other, um, maybe trauma that's happened earlier in life and also the pursuit of connection to the, to the universe. There's so much nuance here to unpack. Okay, so what was what was it like um, when you were doing um, the work, uh, the PhD work at the University of Zurich um, in psychology? What was that time like? Yeah, for you to teach us about that. Well, it was really funny because when I ended my master and submitted my master thesis, I was not really sure what to do next. So I was excited to travel, where whereas other people were uh, like actively seeking post uh, PhD positions, and I didn't even know what it's all about. Like for me, research at the time, I was only interested in the results. I was not interested like how these results were like actually um, like developed and what the study design behind the studies were because I was just learning about what science told me. So I was further away from the research process than other people. Nowadays I'm very carefully and closely looking at how the science is produced and at the time when I was a master student, uh, my master thesis was on party drug prevention in the city of Zurich where we actually implemented a questionnaire that was then used together with the drug checking services, like that's a facility where people can test their drugs, uh, that we actually learned something about the substance use behavior of these people. And for my PhD, it went even further. So there we looked specifically at people who were using substances, not just for recreational reasons, but for reasons of enhancement, to actually enhance their academic performance or their um, performance at work. So that was really interesting. And at the time, the first of the studies conducted in Switzerland. So we started off with uh, student populations at the University of Zurich, ATH, and University of Basel with a 6,000 people sample, and even increased it to a 10,000 people national representative sample to look at the whole population that was actively engaged. So these numbers, um, they were much lower than, than predicted, but still um, like interesting numbers to look at, um, were my first uh, publications and my first steps in the actual science. I can better now understand how you became who you are from all that work that you like laid a foundation of all your understanding of things. And then in 2017, consulted with the UN's Office on Drugs and Crime with Drug Use right. Epidemiology. So what was that like? Well, that was a really interesting position, like if we have already the first slide. Yeah, so let's show the first one now, the career path in science. Let's show that one. Exactly. If we already see the career path in science, then you actually, I want to point out that it, it looks pretty perfect, but it went from working at the Swiss Research Institute for Public Health, actually um, graduating with my PhD to being short-term unemployed. Yeah, yeah. Because that also happened. Because I tried to get the scholarship to come to San Francisco, and everyone believed that I would get that, but it didn't happen. So I failed for the first time and um, by being unemployed, the European Monitoring Center of Drug, uh, drug Use and Addiction, Drug Addiction, they recommended me to apply for a consultancy at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Nice. 
And that consultancy was specifically looking at uh, substance use among school students in Afghanistan and neighboring countries. So that even widened my horizon. By the time yeah. I was working with the Global Drug Survey, because I did an internship in 2014, so I had a pretty broad perspective on substance use across countries already. But of course, in Afghanistan and neighboring countries, uh, there is not so much social media use. There is, of course, a different uh, political system where people also don't feel as comfortable to take a survey online about drugs even mm. if they have um, access to these things. So there the whole thing about being punished for using drugs, uh, no matter whether by the parents or by the system, is of course higher, uh, whereas people in the Western world feel more comfortable and actually keen to share their experiences to help other people who may struggle with drug use. Even that um, nugget there is critical for us in the West to realize how much more comfortable we have the privilege of vocalizing our, our drug use um, versus ones that, that cannot. Was the majority of work with the UN was in research for Afghanistan? Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, we were providing uh, technical assistance for the countries and that was a very interesting like, process also to learn how they work in the field and what challenges they face with different ministries who seem to be responsible and involved in that drug survey. So that was a, a huge thing because um, other than with the Global Drug Survey where we basically ask what is relevant, what is important for the people who use drugs and so on, there it's really much guided by the ministries what can be asked and what can't be asked because they don't want to encourage drug use by asking questions. And of course there are different terminologies of different drugs and so on. And then, so then how did it move to UCSF from there? Well, while being a consultant, I actually applied for a second time at the Swiss National Science Foundation for this early career um, postdoc uh, mobility grant. And in the second time, I was actually successful. And that provided me to, with the opportunity uh, to actually move to San Francisco and start my postdoc in April 2018. By the time I moved, um, I already got involved in many um, different uh, professional societies that was also part of my career development at yeah. this stage where I was unemployed, where I was looking for new challenges and so on. So I was really backed up by the European Society for Prevention Research, which, which is kind of like the small sister um, from the Society for Prevention Research that actually had the conference here in San Francisco last week. So, so, so you got immersed immediately into the different kind of societies out here that could help boost the career faster and connections faster and research faster. Okay. And now when, so it's been almost a year and a half, you're approaching a year and a half now with UCSF with doing the postdoc research. Um, so we actually have a bunch of good slides to start unpacking with this. Um, let's jump into the tobacco cannabis control and impact on youth. Yeah. Okay. So. U.S. cannabis laws in 2019. Yeah, this is actually um, like the graph from governing.com. And if you can see this one, Illinois, the, the graph online was last updated May 22nd. And last Friday, there was um, cannabis, the recreational use of cannabis was legalized in Illinois. So I've added this light green <laughs> You've thing. edited it, yeah. I've edited it. <laughs> That's why it's a rectangle, yeah. Like well, Photoshop rectangle. Illinois has a bit, little bit of for different shape, but um, my yeah, graphical yeah. skills it's are limited. Bit, yeah. So it's actually by now 11 states that have like cool. um, legalized uh, cannabis for recreational use at the 
age of 21. And one of the research wow. questions I'm looking at, I'm interested in is whether anything has changed with regard to the use of cannabis among youth, like those people who are not eligible to buy from the legal market, but still um, th that is the group that I'm most interested in because there, with enough information, um, a delay of onset of regular cannabis use in youth can really um, be beneficial for those people who decide to use um, cannabis early on. And for that, I'm comparing different um, data sources um, from the National Household Surveys, um, also the Global Drug Survey data set that I have. And I'm not interested in just the prevalence of drug use. I'm not interested in how many have tried ever or in the last year, because if that just was once or twice, that's probably, probably relatively low risk and not very concerning. But I want to see whether there were changes at the, like, amount of use or frequency of use or a change in different cannabis products because of course here in the US you have a really broad palette of different cannabis products that are available with different kinds of potencies and especially young people are very okay. vulnerable like for risks related to these drugs. So within the 11 states that have it legalized for recreational use for those that are over 21 you were analyzing to see if their habits changed with yes. the legalization in their state. Exactly. Did I use it more? And especially for those young people who are anyway not affected by the legal changes. Because if we discuss the cannabis law um, or the legal law, um, it kind of is far away from the reality that the first experiences that people make with cannabis use are usually at the age of 12 to 21. So yeah, minors, yeah. huh? Yeah. So the, the, like for them, the, they still have to go to the black market or ask someone to buy for them in the legal market. But however, like what we need to see is um, with the current markets existing on the internet, including the clear net, but also the dark net, um, it's, more, it's easier than ever, especially for Western societies to buy um, cannabis. And when we were young, like also our parents had access to cannabis and you and I, we had both access when we were young, but maybe you needed to know at least one of the cool persons in a certain group, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not the case anymore today. So we have to discuss like education about drugs very differently because the access has increased everywhere. And this is nothing we can currently stop with the different forms of regulation. And, and the findings were that the frequency increase or decrease or? Uh, the findings I'm still analyzing, yeah, still analyzing, so I'm looking at different data sets, but um, overall it doesn't seem that the um, cannabis markets have actually changed use behavior among youth and the most okay. important predictor for actually um, predicting cannabis use among youth, like under the age of 21 is always the peer drug use, like whether their peer Peers group using is using or not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then, then also that um, th was that also with the um, tobacco uh, control. Was that also with the tobacco control as well? With the tobacco control, um, we're sitting in San Francisco, where we have among the most restrictive laws uh, for like tobacco control, and they had have huge su successes in also banning cigarette use among youth and another um, form of use has has come up, like the e-cigarettes. Uh, that we see. So yeah. that's a whole different area that we won't touch big time today. But it's also worth noting that for um, like adults who are using cigarettes, um, e-cigarettes can be a wonderful way of reducing harm. 
especially when they use occasionally like everything that is not burned is actually better but then again like of course it's more attractive to young people and it's also available although for example companies like Juul have great systems to um, like look um, whether the age is um, whether people are old enough to buy these um, these um, items but still of course um, young people who want to have access to it they still have and what are some of the restriction laws that San Francisco has on tobacco? Well, um, one of the specific ones is that they actually ban the sales of flavored tobacco. So in the shops uh, you can no longer buy menthol cigarettes or like uh, vapes um, like nicotine um, containing flavors. As that, that was one of the laws and um, oh. now they're trying, uh, there's another public hearing coming up this Friday where they really try to get rid of all the e-cigarettes or vape devices to be sold in California, in San Francisco. Yeah, Australia has some crazy packaging on their cigarettes that makes it, um, right. yeah, um, like you will die smoking these, like you'll get cancer and like it prevents more people from, from purchasing it. Um, and the whole movement with the uh, e-cigarettes e and jewels and stuff, that, that'll be another interesting field to see what happens with the evidence-based drug policy in the future because getting young kids addicted to nicotine when they're like 16 is mm -hmm. um, a whole under-researched area of and what that actually happens with brain and physiology in general. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and so then um, uh, what was it um, that um, this this image here, you have a you have you have a story about yeah. this that is actually really profound. Go ahead and yeah, teach us about this. Yeah, maybe to make the link between um, tobacco and cannabis. Yes. What is interesting, what we see in the global drug survey is that people who use cannabis, um, like in Europe or like I think it, Italy was the highest. Um, um, like countries, uh, respondents that were answering to the survey really. Um, add tobacco when they smoke cannabis. Whereas here in America, usually almost no one, um, like nine, over 90% use just the cannabis. Like they also have like the vape devices where they can use the pure cannabis. But when people smoke cannabis in a, in a form of a joint, um, at least in Europe and in many other countries, people add tobacco, which is not the case here. So that's very good for the health of people who use cannabis. But then the industry of course has also gotten more, um, more, innovative and creative uh, to actually think about those people who maybe not want to smoke or like combust cannabis at all but maybe still want to get that high and so there has a whole has been a whole new industry around edible use and edible is the like a food that contains uh, cannabis and we also need to define there is um, cannabis with uh, THC and CBD content and the THC is the component and other components that are actually making it psychoactive whereas the CBD, the cannabidiol can also be used just for relaxation purposes and so when we look for example at the Swiss law or certain European laws we see that um, cannabis with less than 1% THC which is not psychoactive is legal so like all the CBD products can also be sold as um, cakes or as tea or as even as like liquids so that doesn't matter and you can still drive a car the WHO the World Health Organization has also uh, confirmed that but on the other hand we've see, we see in the United States the increasing potency um, increased potency of um, cannabis or THC in certain food products and this one the example that I'm showing here is a 
a recent example in Amsterdam when I was there to speak at the Club Health Conference. That was a really nice conference about nightlife and drug use and how it all interacts and how to in include the different stakeholders. And there, uh, the conference ended on the day, uh, May 17th, which was my 30th birthday. So all my friends from Switzerland would um, come over to celebrate my birthday during that weekend. And on Saturday, the following day, there was a daytime festival in Amsterdam. And so I actually choked and said, like, we're in Amsterdam, the drugs are pretty good, like, that's another story I will come back to later, but um, I don't mind if you take drugs, but please don't do space cakes. Because space cakes, um, no matter how much cannabis or THC is in there, uh, they're really unpredictable with their effects. So it takes a lot of time, delayed reaction time, uh, up to 1.5 hours is here. Yeah. And um, it, it remains long. So here, Six to eight hour effects as well. Yeah. And, and do we know about how many um, milligrams of cannabis go into a space cake? Well, that depends on the factory. That's just one of the Michelin star guided that my girls found. And they were like, oh, this is, of course, a good brand. It looks nice. That's like a passion fruit cake. And it has a good description. And um, on the other side, it's also clear that it's our pleasure is your pleasure. So they really care for their customers and clients. So everything you can know, including the THC content, was uh, was there and they were also aware of um, what to do but on the other hand when they walked out actually thinking about uh, dosing responsibly someone else told them you're in Amsterdam go hard or go home so what they did is they went hard they three girls ate both of these cakes but they made it to the festival and then also went home because it was obviously too much and um, different things like high potency cannabis uh, used orally can also lead to psychiatric um, symptoms or you can have anxiety and the only good yeah. thing is it's all in your brain it's just happening in your brain uh, like no one ever like died from cannabis but still it can be really overwhelming for someone who didn't have an experience <coughs> like this before yeah, the the pressure first, the, the the what we're manufacturing, and then also the the pressure um, that comes from others on uh, go hard or go home uh, culture, and and you can ruin a full a person's full day of yeah. life. Like we only get so many days, twenty thousand days to live, and uh, if we w accidentally waste one, we feel like, and then you have to spend the next day kind of recovering. So you can waste like two days of your life. Right. Um, and that's a big deal if we're not educated enough. I've done plenty of wasteful uh, things like this in my life, mm -hmm. my bad behaviors, my bad decisions with these, and to educate young people to be like dose appropriately um, is, is so, so critical. And thank goodness nobody got yeah hurt, but, they, but the anxiety is real as well. There's so many components to this. Yeah. So we, when we think about the industry, what we would want to see is also that they take more responsibility, that they maybe not send them out of the cakes, but maybe also create like a safe space and a room where people can have this experience and maybe more something like a chill out instead of sending them back to the city and all the tourist attractions or whatever they do that yeah. day. An hour and a half to delay to onset and then six to eight hour. Like those are also major, yeah, those are major time, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when you're in Amsterdam, the funny thing is that um, also, for example, as of truffles and mushrooms are legal and LSA and other drugs, 
but the fun thing is they have a trip stopper. So they also... They have a trip stopper? They have a trip stopper. What are psilocybins and LSD's trip stoppers? I, I don't know. I, I didn't read what's actually in there, but you can buy them also. A trip stopper and drink it or something or eat it? Yes, exactly. It's, it's sold like a package. Could be like any new psychoactive substance from the internet, but it's sold as a trip stopper. And I haven't heard of that before either, but it obviously helps you to calm down earlier. And Whoa. I didn't know, I wasn't aware of that existing Whoa. before. Let's try and not make the boo-boos the mistake in the first place to need a trip stopper to, yeah, yeah. Exactly, it's yeah. not uh, valid for cannabis. Not valid for cannabis <laughs> as well, yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, okay. And then, um, okay, let's, yeah, on the next slide, Ronnie. Um, okay, so teach us about the THC CBD content in edibles. Well, that was a very well-informed sample who actually took part in a global drug survey 2019 data we collected in November, December 2018, so very recently. And uh, this is something we haven't published in the key findings, but the key findings are online. And here we looked at people from 16 countries, like a sample of 6,000 people who have used edibles and like these edibles, so they eat cannabis as part of their cannabis use structure. They also have other forms of cannabis use, most of them. But here we see that about like only 16% are aware of both the CBD and the THC content, so something you want to know. And most of the sample came actually from the United States and from Germany because we had pretty big interest in the United States and a pretty big sample in, in Germany. And we see, we've seen an age difference. So we've seen that people who are 25 years and older were more likely to be good informed compared to the minors and that yeah. is also yeah. due to those who can access the legal market of course are those who are a bit yeah. older compared to the younger but the younger ones also do it so again they're um, those who don't have access to legal markets like in Amsterdam or here in, in in the United States in several states they actually bake it and make it make it themselves at home so the very old-fashioned way and that's the most uh, prevalent uh, way of um, sourcing uh, cannabis edibles still. So when you make it on your own, you maybe may be able to know the strength of your TH, uh, the cannabis that you buy, but you never know how that turns out and how it's distributed in the things you bake. Yeah, so, the, this the green bar of awareness needs to be rocketed upward. We need to yeah. be aware of what we are consuming um, all, all the time all the time exactly in food in drug use in all different aspects of our lives even the algorithms that control our technology just to be aware of that they do it yeah yeah, yeah and on alcohol bo bottles you actually have like the indication on um how much the alcohol person is but on uh, mm. uh, on all the cannabis and other drugs that are sold via the illegal market you have actually no idea, no idea. yeah yeah wow safety Safety is huge. Okay, and then um, I also want to mention this as we move on that um, you had three years in Vienna as well. Still, this is still going on, right, for you with the meeting on the Commission of on Narcotic Drugs. Yeah. Okay, and then how um, with that relation to the to the cannabis as well? We'll also bring it up at the end. Okay, that was maybe um, yeah related to the cannabis. Um, so um, there is a Commission on Narcotic Drugs that actually meets annually. And uh, in 2009, they had a political declaration that defined the aims for the next 10 years of the drug policy worldwide. What do we want to reach? And basically, some of these aims 
back then were still very clear. We want to have a drug-free world. Uh, we want to eradicate poppy fields in Afghanistan and then also the cocaine plants in Bolivia and Colombia. But what was happened was actually the opposite. Um, over these 10 years, like uh, this year in March, the ministerial segment, the high-level segment had to decide what's happened and um, they don't really take stock of these changes, but there was a re important process in 2016, um, the ONGAS, which was the United Nations General Assembly special session on, dr on drugs, mm -hmm. and they also analyzed what's happened over the years and uh, nothing has actually changed and uh, nothing has decreased. In some countries we have better numbers now um, where we can better locate who is using drugs and how many people, but the demand has not decreased in none of the countries. And importantly for cannabis, um, like the UN conventions actually um, say this is a, um, a Schedule A drug, so it's illegal and there is no medical purpose. And this is of course changing now with the whole um, science around the medical value of some forms of cannabis and some con contaminants, um, some constitutions of uh, cannabis that have a medical benefit, but that was again not really discussed. And then um, while United States have made, uh, um, has several states that have legalized cannabis, this is nothing that the US talks about at this meeting, because the US f still follows that idea, of we want to have like a drug-free world, and they don't bring up like intentionally their own experiences with these legal markets. So they abstain from that. And what was happening in Ca Canada was that Canada has legalized um, cannabis federally. So that was a decision made by the government and um, that was discussed at this meeting too because that actually moves beyond the conventions and they were also discussing about exclusion of Canada, what didn't happen. But um, it will be very exciting to focus on that meeting and the whole international um, range when it comes, like cannabis is now the first drug we discussed, but maybe other drugs may follow, like uh, countries may look for ways how to regulate the drugs to actually to reduce the harm and increase public health. Um, and so that is something we really have to focus on. Yeah, it's a public health issue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it, so there's a 10 year um, that we're, we're trying to kind of like use this as kind of like a sustainable goal for our future. And we kind of, we need better data on measuring, we need better practices yes. on, on treating it like a public health. This is kind of what um, also leads us into the global drug survey stuff. So this is, um, this is, a, you started in 2000, I think 12 mm -hmm. was only like, 12,000 people or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy because now, uh, seven years later, or six, six years later, because it ended last year, that, that there were 120,000 people. So an order of magnitude increase in, in including myself. I loved, your, I loved your survey. I thought your survey was very uh, friendly. It was very promoting me to be honest. And I felt very comfortable submitting answers to you because I want to figure out I want to be a help. I want to be helpful, yeah. and I think that's what a lot of people thought when they were when they were doing this. So, teach us about global drug survey and what has been going on the last couple of years with this. Yeah. So, um, to make the link from the United Nations back to global drug survey, it's very interesting because, uh, like the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes, UNODC, they publish um, upcoming on June 26th uh, the World Drug World Drug Report, like each year. 
they publish a world drug report where they take together all the data from the countries that is available to look at drug markets and so on. And they also talk about the seizure data, that is data on how much of the drugs were seized. And depending on the political goals of the countries, these data change. And if they focus more or have a higher budget on law enforcement, of course, the numbers go up. And that can be seen as a success for many countries. But it doesn't tell you anything about how the people in your country use the drugs. And what it does um, when you actually seize a lot of drugs can also be dysfunctional for, for the communities because um, if you like seize a lot of drugs, then maybe the drug becomes more expensive because it's more risky for the dealer to provide the drugs to the people who are maybe addicted to the drugs and need the drugs. So these are all thoughts that are need to be thought in addition to just looking at the numbers. And then the countries and the national household surveys, they mainly look at how many people have used a certain kind of drug in the last year ever or like in the last 30 days. And these are good indicators to look who is using in your country and what we see with cannabis is that of course these prevalence rates are kind of increasing because the more people hear about it the more likely they are to try and the more legal and accepted it becomes the less stigmatized the more likely they are to report in a national household survey so we in the global drug survey we are not really interested in these numbers in how many people use drugs but we want to know how because we want to make an assumption about the risk that is related to use and if I'm talking about risk related to drug use, um, many studies, just like I said, they just take the 12-month prevalence and that's really not sufficient because what, what you want to know is the amount of use, like how much of the drug do they use. You want to use the free, you want to know the frequency of use, how often do these people use. You also want to know polydrug use, like mm. whether they use other substances concurrently on, or in combination with these drugs. And you want to know something about the motives for use, because mm. some people may actually benefit from certain kinds of drugs and use them as a self-medication for whatever reason. So there are many components you want to understand to actually be able to say whether a person is using a drug very risky or not. You have to form a survey that, that, that builds an emotional connection with the person that's submitting it to feel like in, the, their, in their country, of course. And I mean, like, their social fabric has to make it easy. Like, like you gave our example in Afghanistan, people were less likely to, to submit. Yeah. But that uh, I, my dosage, my frequency of use, my motives for use, all these things are, these are, hard, these are very hard to, um, to get people to want to, to talk about, but they're so important once you collect this data to gain insight about the country and about the, um, the motives, the behaviors. Also, that question that you, um, you reminded me of the mm -hmm. question, which was that, um, would, you, would you pay additional money if the drugs were sourced to you in a nonviolent way? Um, yeah, in a way that didn't harm other people in the, in, the, um, in the acquisition of the drugs. And people were saying yes, like 25%, they would pay 25% more um, for the acquisition of the drugs, which is great to hear as well, because people are um, they're con they're they're more aware of the processes that uh, where yeah, because people can get harmed right. along the way. I think that's a very important point and um, that also help, um, turns back to how we actually create new questions or new models, because last year Mexico and Colombia really approached us um, and said that there are big issues with violence related to drug trafficking. So they wanted to do something like on the political level and we were just thinking about like, let's ask our people who actually uh, use this cocaine, would they be ready to pay more if they would know that this is like produced fair trade? 
And it's a very interesting um, survey because the, what you see on this slide is just the core research team, Adam Winstock, who's a psychiatrist in the UK who's funding the survey. So it's not funded by like a national uh, organization like the National Institute of Health, for example, because it's really funded by one person. and. Um, that's why we are also able to ask the questions we want to, like each year new questions. And the other two, my uh, collaborators, uh, Jason and Monica in Australia, me in Switzerland, or now in the United States, we work together with a bunch of harm reduction organizations, uh, researchers in the field, and people at the ground to actually figure out what are the new trends and topics where we don't have data at, where we don't have like a validated questionnaire, like for de depression or anything, where we can go through and screen and say, oh, this is the case. So we are really happy to bring up new topics and you see the pizza picture and there um, last year for yeah. the first time we asked uh, the people how long it takes to get uh, pizza delivered and among those people who are also ordered cocaine um, to be delivered to their house or to a point uh, we asked them how long this takes if it was delivered within a day. And we were seeing that in cities like Zurich or like Amsterdam and so on, where a lot of the like drug dealing is also connected to social media use or WhatsApp and so on, communications via social media. Yeah. There we were seeing that the cocaine was delivered faster than pizza. Where is this? <laughs> <laughs> but that also like contributes to understanding like the different kinds of drug markets and scales. But um, other things we did were, for example, you see a drinking label. Like 30 minute delivery. Within less than 30 minutes. Like there were more people yeah. who could get cocaine within less than 30 minutes when compared to ordering pizza. And in, in, in which market? In Switzerland? In different uh, bigger in cities, different like also in, yeah, in Germany. Or also in Germany too, probably or in some from the United States, but I didn't look at that. Whoa. Yeah. And these are, of course, questions we come up with that are not very ordinary. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> these are those questions that, yeah, yeah, that if you, you can come up, it's cool that your team can form a question that gives you such a unique insight into the global drugs scene that you wouldn't have been able to access if you didn't form this unique question that right. got them to, yeah, yeah. So your question design is actually a really crucial component of this. Yes. So are you guys already thinking about the questions? Because um, to teach people, you, you, you take surveys in November and December. Yes. And then you end the survey period so you can analyze the data for the um, several month period, like couple, right. five, six months, and then you release the findings. The key findings. The key findings. Yes, as a publication, which is online on globaldrugsurvey.com. That's globaldrugsurvey.com. You can find that at link in the bio, yeah. globaldrugsurvey.com. We released these key, key findings like three weeks ago when I was in Amsterdam for the Club Health Conference. And we got a pretty big media attention again across the countries because they're keen to report on it. And um, each year we have new modules. And as you said, right now we're preparing already GDS 2020, which will be um, like uh, collected in November and December. So if you're now watching, please take part in November and December. Set, Watch your, out. set your calendar, set a reminder. Set a reminder. I'm going to submit again. Yeah. Let me get Ron to submit. Yeah, <laughs> going anywhere.
<laughs> I ain't submitting any. You go ahead and I'll hang back here. Yeah, and what is maybe special about this survey also to maybe just mention it is that people really trust us and um, we also really want to help make drug use safer for those people who decide to use drugs. But when I'm talking about drugs, I'm talking about both legal and illegal drugs. And like one third who takes part mm. has never used an illegal drug. Uh -huh. And cannabis is still like counted as an illegal drug globally, right? So one third takes part and shares their experience with um, alcohol, alcohol, and tobacco, tobacco use, and oh, and pharmaceuticals. Exactly, yeah, yeah, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And this year, for example, we had we were collaborating with uh, different people in the field of psychedelic science and looking into like giving people something, some food for thought. Where with the current uh, developments, we asked them how likely they would be if they were diagnosed with depression or PTSD um, to actually seek. Uh, different kinds of treatments like talk therapy, antidepressants, yeah. or treatments with psychedelic drugs yes. like psilocybin and LSD. Yes. Because these drugs, at least for the recreational use, we were seeing that um, psilocybin was the safest drug um, when we looked at emergency medical treatment seeking compared to that. And um, that yeah. was a really important measure. And like people who take part who don't use illegal drugs can, of course, also participate in modules like this. And for the upcoming survey in November, we will have one really specific module on nightlife and substance use. Wow. So again, people who go out and who go clubbing, yes. no matter whether you use legal or illegal drugs or no drugs, they can all participate. Wow. You guys are, yeah, yeah um, GDS is, you have this really cool trajectory that I'm seeing right now, which is like, you continue to design powerful questions, build up more and more people around the world that want to submit answers for this global public health understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, uh, the hashtag know your drugs, you know, this type of thing, you're going to build out a really cool, um, I can see this growing to, you know, millions of people um, submitting to this right. every single year. And that, yeah, and taking, and researchers from around the world wanting to query the data set to find additional findings that a small team, maybe you grow your team maybe they query mm -hmm. the data yeah 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 we actually really welcome uh, participation or collaborations with researchers especially when they have for example research funding want to look at a certain kind of question that we already addressed and we can maybe provide data from multiple years so we're not looking at the same sample each year but we can still like look at trends for example in darknet market use like we're the only survey that actually has each year data for different countries uh, for different participants, but still like for similar groups in the similar countries, um, whether they have used uh, bought, whether they have bought drugs from the dark net for themselves, for someone else, or whether someone else bought for them. And these data, again, are also featured in the World Drug Report because no one else actually gets these data from the demand side, like from people who use drugs. They only have supply side, like they're studying the markets online and they look at it also from a law enforcement perspective but like the actual data, who is buying and whether these markets are growing as a response to prohibition or other things is just visible from the data we have. And this also shows to us how fascinating it is that if the government was to uh, query you for your uh, drug use behaviors, you would be so much little more likely to be like hesitant. I don't want to give the like NSA my, uh, my drug use behaviors, but if it's like a what appears to be like a private, benevolent research organization that's about global health, public health, 
humans are so much more willing to like answer the questions and and um, yeah so that's that's a very interesting um, dynamic that mm -hmm. is developing in our world well in an ideal world um, like if you would be my employer we would have a normal discussion about my and your drug uh, maybe just my drug is yeah, yeah. Um, at the point of employment because what you could do by having more honest and transparent cons conversations about drugs is actually seeing if someone's use is changing over time and then ask specifically why this is changing and then be early for early detection and most importantly early intervention when problematic substance use occurs and with that you could like get rid of lots of lots of pro problems. Yeah. You, because who, how often do we really ask each other these questions? Like, yeah, how often are you drinking? Why? What are the incentives behind drinking? Mm -hmm. um, because if someone queers me and asks, you know, why did you stop? You know, how often do you drink and smoke cannabis? And I'm like, I don't. Mm -hmm. Why? Focus. I want to focus on what I'm building, what I'm yeah. working on. How often do you use psychedelics? Well, maybe several times a year. I like to explore what it does to the state of my of my mind, what I can creatively understand, connect to unity, all these types of things. Yeah. So, but to actually have these conversations in an open way with our coworkers, our family, uh, friends, like people online, like we need more of open dialogue around it and less taboo. And so this is huge for, for doing that. Promoting honest conversations about drug use. I love it. I love it. Um, will you uh, will you teach us your um, your um, you, we'll, we'll get we'll get we'll get to this in a quick moment. I want to know um, your um, take on this. Um, it's so interesting that we should decriminalize but we don't know how yet to structure the legalization because here we see Oakland decriminalize the shrooms and other natural psychedelics. Yeah. So it's like decriminalize but we don't know how to structure legalization. Teach us about what, what that is. Right, so this year in Denver, um, psilocybin mushrooms have been decriminalized. And yesterday, last night, off, after 11 p.m., my friends were gathering in Oakland at the city hall when they announced that also Oakland anonymously approves the decriminalization of sacred plants, um, including psilocybin, like the magic mushrooms, including iboga, which is ibogain, and um, even DMT, which is like for the ayahuasca plant. So these sacred plants and peyote, San Pedro, as you can see, they are obviously um, there um, growing in nature and they were once also criminalized as part of the war on drugs and people were now starting to question this because why should we criminalize the nature? And like different forms of psychedelic um, substances have of course different risks and it can be very overwhelming to use any form of psychedelic substance for the first time if you don't know how. So like when driving a car, you should in theory have some uh, ideas about um, how to use it and what measures to take that you have people with you and so on. So this is excellently said. We don't imagine if you never drove a car ever in your life and yeah. then you just started it. Oh yeah, it'll be 60 mile an hour on the interstate. Too fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So also with Global Drugs, we provide some of the checklists that you should go through when you decide to use a drug for like LSD for the first time. So that's something we think is very important. And yeah, people can um, like with the right guidance, uh, these plants are relatively safe to use yeah. and has been used for years and years, like for thousands of years, yes. also as part of rituals yes. and stuff. The thing is that in the Western culture, we take these plants, of course, a bit out of their context and we want to make... Commoditize them. Commoditize <laughs> them. 
and of course like yeah. with every other drug we would like to see decommodification that it's more about um, like gifting and like if you think about Burning Man and the Ten Principles that brings it actually very well together where it's really about the community and about like looking at these plants and seeing who's benefiting from these plants in what kind of doses they have to be used or should be used and what it means and again it's not legalized and it still can be criminalized like obviously under the federal law but it was just made the lowest um, like interest for the for the uh, police to prosecute so yeah. they have more important things, things to, do. to do yeah <laughs> yeah murder rape there's so much so many more worse things to be doing than people that are trying to connect to God or yeah. like unity or yeah or integrate and heal trauma right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah okay so so um, what would an ideal um, so yeah, please responsible use um, uh, totally responsible use uh, um, psycho with with a um, psychedelic psychotherapy, all different types of yeah responsible uses here. Um, with with give us an idea of what it would look like for a potential ideal legalization structure. Have you and your colleagues talked about what that could look like? Well, I mean, for all of these plants and other than cannabis, there are currently no models available that have been tested or piloted or anything. So it's really different, difficult to think about like the legal context. Importantly, from the perspective of the person who decides to use the drug, what is important is that um, people who are looking into more kind of self-medication things, especially with psychedelic plants, um, it's important that uh, the experience is guided, that you have like integration prior and also after yes. using the substance therapeutically. So yes. at the moment we have of course a lot of studies and great work by MAPS like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science that has been shown not only in the US but also in other countries that it's possible that people benefit from it and that symptoms that are otherwise can't be treated with medical interventions uh, can be addressed with these things and it's, it's, it's really successful but of course not for everyone and that's important to know like even with positive findings yeah. there we still need to see who is actually benefiting from it and who's not and the same is true for the recreational market like the good thing about psychedelic drugs is that they are not really like addictive looking at the physical level compared to drugs like heroin or methamphetamine or whatever but still they can of course um, if you use it as a tool to either like increase your well-being or your performance like a topic we discuss mm -hmm. next yes um, it can be also creating like a kind of psychological dependence that you only think you're able to thrive only with these products and of course um, our human body is very good as it is if it gets enough sleep well uh, good nutrition enough of sports and maybe also enough of social interaction and that's another thing to consider that is not included in the debate yeah this is a very um, cool perspective on on reality is that if with the right um, amounts of with the with a beautiful social fabric that can actually do things um, like uh, give people the, the really powerful um, family structures and and um, uh, social structures, nutrition, sleep, exercise. Do we even need these things like the use of smart drugs on the rise, that we need these cognitive enhancers, that we can connect to divine uh, feelings and potentials without uh, Adderall and without um, uh, nootropics potentially. But then some people say, well, we're biology's too slow. We need to, 
We need to enhance ourselves from the outside. We need to be more productive in the world. So what are your thoughts on the cognitive enhancement self-optimization space? Because your, your article in Nature News, um, you, you had a paper that was, uh, was referenced on 15 um, countries using drug enhancers, which is cool too. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, it's funny because like the journalist uh, that is pictured here um, actually approached me again this year and asked for data about uh, cognitive enhancement in the survey and we didn't include it again. We had it in 2015 and 17 survey and not in the 19 anymore because we tried to make the survey always more user friendly so we take less and less modules in there and only ask very specific populations of interest for it. Never mind, um, never mind, I was like looking at data from 15 countries in these two years and I was see, like the US was, uh, we didn't look at prevalence but of course at rates in the samples and the US was highest like from the beginning. It was of course a sample of people who used drugs but they were not much higher than like the general population of students or the general student population in the country. Yeah. And it was interesting to see that the different the, the, the drugs differed between the countries. So as you said, in the United States were Adderall, Adexamphetamine, which is really strong and is like licensed or available for people um, who are treating symptoms of ADHD or ADD with it is licensed. This was the most common drug. And um, in other countries, like in the UK, modafinil, uh, it's a, a medication for narcolepsy or Ritalin in other European countries was most um, like prevalent and we were seeing a gradual increase more in other countries that were more restrictive and had at the same time more uh, like pressure on the education system so that was an interesting link that we figured out in that paper and that was featured in nature at the time yeah the future of this field is be so nuts I, this also kind of speaks in depth about um, what's happening in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of hype around microdosing. Mm -hmm. um, I want maybe speak on that and also how the research shows that psilocybin is actually the safest drug. Right. Yeah, that was my link going from the decriminalized nature to the enhancement debate because um, psilocybin, um, when we looked at all the people who used a certain drug, like each year, um, we looked at all who used alcohol, all who used cannabis, all who used psilocybin and then looked in this group who was actually showing up in the emergency medical treatment seeking like last year. Then this proportion was always lowest for the psilocybin, for people who used psilocybin. We had each year about 10,000 people that we questioned. And so that was really uh, profound and new to us. But um, like that's a trend that comes again every year and among those with the highest um, like emergencies we see of course heroin or synthetic cannabinoids and like things that are more uh, difficult to dose and also uh, drugs that are more and more contaminated with other substances so that's another topic we may come back later but when looking at the enhancement debate and also microdosing we have data in the global drug survey as well we see first studies coming up uh, looking at whether people benefit or not but it's difficult again to make these studies as long as the drugs are illegal under federal law so it's immensely costly to get the drugs and um, you cannot just buy them on the streets and see whether they are good so you produce them in a laboratory but only like some kinds of laboratories are certified to actually produce it for research purposes 
And we have a bunch of uh, research looking at the effects of like psilocybin and LSD in healthy people also coming from Switzerland, uh, from my colleagues um, Preller Lichti and at the University of Basel and Zurich. So they're doing a good amount of work there. But for microdosing, we really know very little. And we hear it as a trend, and it's, 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 it's kind of trendy for media. They want to hear more about that too. But the only thing I can say, what we've seen in the Global Drug Survey among the people who have used the drugs and who have tried microdosing, many of them had only tried one or two times or a few times, and not so many of them would report uh, microdosing on a regular basis. And so it's still, yeah, again, like with every other drug, it's dependent on the amount, like you really just would need a one in tenth of a of uh, like the drug and I, I never actually tried it myself so I can't even give you like the personal experience story to that but I think that of course there are people who may have difficulties with focusing who can benefit from it but overall again like other factors in your lifestyle behavior are probably more impor important and significant in predicting your performance. And then there's um so there's this oh there's this um what is the, the next, the next asset we have is an image from what we, like, this is like when you enter into a festival, yes. what is it called when you get the, it's checked, what is that checking, check-in process? Drug checking. Drug check-in? Yes. Okay, a drug check-in. <laughs> okay. So, topic. Yeah, what's, okay, what's happening with drug check-ins um, at like music festivals, at Burning Man's, at all these different, um, what are drug check-ins and also um, what's going on with, and we'll get to the next asset which kind of shows kind of what the progress has been with different countries and drug mm -hmm. check-ins, okay. Right, so also when we think about uh, nightlife festivals, people who microdose in Silicon Valley or wherever, we, people who take part in a global drug survey, we always talk about a really privileged population and usually um, people with a university yeah. degree or they're more likely to be represented and seek these services or take part in a survey and the other people are maybe don't even care for um, like what's in the drug or don't have access to anything. And so as long as drugs are illegal, one of the main health risks is related to not knowing what is in the drug, that there can be potentially um, like health um, harming components in the drugs and also that there can be like a high dose of a certain drug, um, more than you actually want to take. Like when you drink alcohol on the label, again, you know exactly how strong the alcohol is. So you know that a beer has less uh, is less strong than maybe a w certain kind of wine and maybe less strong than spirits and you can make more informed decisions on how much you want to drink To We also sometimes ask the people in the survey how much they need to get tipsy or to feel an effect to get as drunk as they want to be or to get more drunk as they want to be. So people can relate that based on standard drinks really clearly. It's not the case with drugs. Yeah. And nevertheless, um, certain uh, many countries or also community organizations have uh, realized that early on in the 90s when uh, there was a techno boom in Germany and in Europe and also here like um, different kinds of uh, new communities existed and then it suddenly became important to know what's in the drug to actually um, make it less harmful for those people who decide to use drugs. And the Netherlands were actually the first to start with the DIMS, um, like a drug uh, information monitoring system uh, run by the government, basically, or directed by the government. 
And um, there, the idea was also mainly to monitor drug markets. So it was not um, just to help people use drugs more safely, but to know a bit more about what's in the drugs. And mm -hmm. Spain and other countries followed, and also the United States was in 1997 very early on with Dansafe, an organization that still exists. Mm -hmm. And the picture before was from Lightning in a Bottle, so they are present at this festival and also at Burning Man or other festivals. But they provide like the, the drug tests, uh, yeah. color tests. Is it Dansafe.org? Org. I think, yeah. yeah um, shout out, because they're um, doing the safe t testing. Well, yeah. safe testing is probably the wrong thing because no drug use is ever safe. And Very it's also not safe because, again, they do the colometric tests where they can identify the drug and see that whether the drug is there or not. But they don't have like the um, mass spectrometry methods or whatever available uh. um, because it's still under federal law illegal to actually test drugs for people who want to use them. So they're, they're not allowed officially to do that. And the whole drug checking debate that now comes to the US is related to harm reduction context because yeah, the yeah. heroin is uh, laced with fentanyl. So there at some of the services they provide now more than just color tests or the first pilots are coming, but it's not for the majority of people who use drugs at festivals or in nightlife settings recreationally, but for the small, vul most vulnerable population which uh, uses drugs and are addicted to drugs, right? And the difference is also like people who are addicted to drugs and may not have the money to afford drugs, they are less likely to give away their drugs. Whereas people who are like, again, well-suited and privileged, they may be more likely to use services like drug checking. And importantly, if we look at the next graph, um, there yes. are, yeah. It looked like, <laughs> the, yeah, it looked, um, the, the one um, right, just right before this round, there's, there's a, a, a majority of, of these, of, of, of like, kind of like developed countries are moving towards uh, drug check-in processes. Mm -hmm. And this is good. This is something good. If you look at the publication, you can also see which methods they use. We also have a service appendix where you can look up all the different services. And again, more services are starting now. But again, those who don't have uh, like financial means, they yes. are not yes. able to actually bring in methods that can both identify and purify the substance. And even then, it's not totally safe to use it, but people can, bet, uh, can make more informed decisions on how much to use. So if I'm in these countries, I can, uh, have, there's, there's an organization that will come, either a government or, or a private organization, or potentially right. an NGO, that will come and be at the festival that I will be at, and I will take my uh, substance that I would like to use at the festival, and I can get it tested right mm -hmm. there on site by them. And then, um, of course, like you were describing, some of the methods are not absolutely fantastic um, for this process, um, and it's not quite there fully, like legally, that this is like incorporated, like a legal process. It's still like, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Okay, so we're moving in a direction of, of safer drug use, at least. Exactly. For yes. those people who want to know what's in there, and what we've seen, especially in European countries, was uh, really an increase in, for example, the purity of cocaine, and then uh, people have undesirable experiences because it's higher potency than experienced, uh, than expected. And the same was true of uh, MDMA, like the substance in the ecstasy pills. And if we move to the maybe next slide. Okay. Slowly we will see um, that we had a campaign on Mixmac where we said don't be daft, start with half. What does daft mean? Uh, don't be stupid, uh, just take, don't, <laughs> don't take the whole XC pill, yeah, don't be take daft. the half. Don't be daft, 
And Where does that word come from? Daft Punk. <laughs> oh, Daft Punk? No. Oh. That's like a slang, but it's more UK language, I would say. Don't be daft. Do you yeah. know who Daft Punk is? Of course. You're asking the wrong age group yeah. for that. Yeah, you would have to ask the like 10-year-olds if they know who Daft Punk is. All right. Yeah, that would be Okay. The, yeah, yeah. So this or, the, or you. How do you know who Daft Punk is? You're old. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Yeah, yeah. So the pill was split, but nowadays in Europe, you would even add another split to take just a quarter because um, we will see one of the pictures oh, later. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, go down even a quarter. Go down even start with a quarter. And we also ask in the Global Drug Survey, of course, whether people start with a test dose when they use a new pill from a new batch because they can never be sure That's what's in there. That's huge, too, yeah. That's huge, too. Yeah, yeah. And so in America, still, like, the MDMA is not as pure and the pills are not always as strong, so there are huge discrepancy and differences between the pills so here it would, it would be even more important to know for people who use recreationally but again because the drugs are illegal these services are still not provided because they don't think that this would be something to be supported but again also people in America they use the drugs anyway even if they don't know um, what's in there and um, th this is also um, um uh, such a such a critical thing to get good at is understanding that whether it's cannabis or MDMA or whatever psilocybin, LSD, whatever it is, that starting with like a super small dose and being patient um, is so critical. And then what we can do Very from much. that, yeah, is we can actually learn that oh, like um, because there's like a little like cannabis tic tac that you can take now that's only like two milligrams of cannabis, and you can take that and it can be like super non-psychoactive whatsoever and it's just like tiny little body like good feel and and like so so there's all of these different dosages that are potential and it's so much still to explore but sometimes you're just given this massive Karova bar that is like yeah. a thousand milligrams or 500 milligrams you're just like oh and you eat it and then it's like you're blasted and yes. it's like yeah so so chill out take smaller start with half start with a quarter Yep. Yeah, yeah. This is a very good like slogan for safety. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's an excellent one. And then what about the next one? Interpret trends, inform about safer use and inspire change. Yeah, that was more like a summary of uh, this section. It's a bit too big yeah, for Ron, the screen. Ron, Ron will yeah, bring it in. Zoom in, exactly. Yep. So that was more like a summary of what we just like talked about, that it's really like what is important to understand is really to interpret uh, the trends, like from a science perspective, that's what we want to do. We, we don't really, we should not care so much about how many people do it. That's important for like some government numbers and to scale, to see how big your use is in the country, but it doesn't tell you anything about the problematic use. And again, when looking at drug markets, it's really interesting to see where people actually source the uh, drugs from. Also, when you have a legal market, to see whether they actually buy from the legal market or whether they're barriers to buy from the for legal markets such as high taxes for example that exclude certain populations that maybe are in need of good information as well and again like um, the information share it like with everyone we can um, find and then maybe inspire change like by projects like global drug survey and other discussions we have by the discussion today we may be able to inspire change a uh, behavior change for some people but we usually don't see that change happening from just prohibiting substances and just saying that drugs are bad 
and there's there's a lot more with um, with like just in general understanding which factors drive problematic use. Um, I think that's super important. Um, also, um, uh, hi highlighting relevance of social support, dignity, worthiness, inclusion. These are things that are also really important in what um, you guys are going to be building, developing out with this. The next, um, the next asset that actually this actually kind of speaks to some of the social support. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so teach us about this. <laughs> yeah, that's a, like a brainstorming slide. Like it's about as I said, inspiring people and that we can do by connecting people. And on the upper side you see the high-dose ecstasy pill, that was a pill that was tested last month in Switzerland. Like the different projects in different countries uh, also have different rules on whether they put it online or not, but all the findings in Switzerland who are higher than what we expect, so a dose of 120 milligrams per pill would be like the dose that, that can be recommended or that is the highest dose we would recommend and everything above is going to be like yellow or above like this is 246 this is 246 and 120 would be the recommended dose for like a double the recommended yes dose. exactly that's why that's happening exactly and I, I found it funny to say to use this for connecting people because you see Donald Trump on the pill so the pill is actually in Europe, but with the logo from Donald Trump. So there yeah. is a connection between us, yeah. between Europe and the United States. And yeah, these informations are, of course, important uh, for people if they want to make a more informed decision. Um, they would not, like with a full pill, especially for people who use the drug for the first time, it's way too much. Huh? And again, they use the drug anyway. And what's also happening uh, when we look at nightlife, um, in San Francisco we had the Night of Ideas and you see there Stephen Rosper from Burning Man mm -hmm. who is also coordinating all the regional events and they were talking about like how to actually improve the, the life in the city and how to bring communities closer together and especially when we talk about substance use we want to talk about communities and we want to um, talk about how we bring the information out there to people. Yes. And another interesting thing in San Francisco is San Francisco is one of the nine cities that now may be able to serve alcohol not just till 2 a.m. but till 4 a.m. That was a bill brought in for the third time by Scott Wiener here in San Francisco. And that was something that struck me because in Europe I never had to think about lost coal. We don't have that. And I, don't, I also compared the substance use patterns across uh, like Europe in big cities and United States, but there is not no difference. So people are using, they don't changing their substance use behavior just because they can be uh, served two, two hours more. And uh, here the people were really like, oh, this could cause lots of violence and could be harmful. But what it means for me is that people don't have to go to the club at 12 and put in a lot of alcohol either before or mm. in these two hours, mm. but they can like plan for a longer period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. And another thing is that by actually ending, making a last call and having after hours happening, you make it more likely that people actually change to illegal substances, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you know when they're going to um, keep the bars open till four? Do you have any idea? I think they have passed the bill, but I'm not sure. We can look that up online mm -hmm. for sure. And I, I just brought in another example of a Detroit-Berlin connection, like a new project. It's, it's a small-scale project. They have only 3,000 followers on like Facebook. 
but um, it's one of the projects where we also discuss about this 24 hours nightlife that can actually make a city big and not just like the way we think of New Orleans to go and drink in the streets but to think of a 24 hour city as like something with like experience in nightlife where you provide something for your community by increasing the quality of what you provide you also decrease the risk of people just going there to get wasted because you actually provide something with content mm -hmm. and just uh, heat to um, Europe we have NewNet which is enjoying safer nightlife so that's a community across nice. different countries working together to actually make that happen I love the phrase about the content as well, that if the content's there, it's not just about, oh, there's nothing else to do, let's go drink, but rather it's like, there's fun things to do, there's maybe art, there's maybe music, there's maybe science, there's maybe cool history, things yeah. to explore and learn while you do um, engage with maybe some um, substances and social um, fr friends and all this type of stuff. This shit's scary as fuck right here. That is so scary that, um, that, that that type of stuff needs to become more transparent because it can cause people to go just is so short and just like you're off into you it's unsafe right that's the thing okay and then uh on science communication you were just giving us the example of um which is the next slide ronnie that um that like you were giving us the example like there's more and more times that you are now visiting with sacramento trying to push um for uh smart um um, a legislature that helps us with um, safety um, and evidence-based drug policy. So teach us about what's happening um, in the space. And, and also like, like science, we talked about at the very beginning, science is such an important thing to put forth and not like necessarily politicize immediately, but keep more like a foundation of objective truth and then right. move forward and figure out the policy. Yeah, teach us about how you perceive that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I never was so much uh, interested in like politics when I grew up, like I never joined a party or anything. I worked with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime and got into a little bit of the political context that we also may discuss on the next slide again. But when coming to the United States, I really realized that there are a lot of NGOs that are advocating for certain policies either for or against cannabis, very clearly. So there is the industry, but there are also interest groups. And um, the same is true like for, for, for many of the things. And um, what we never actually learned was how to communicate science to policymakers. And it's also oftentimes not really heard because the ideology and the people who vote for you actually direct what you're gonna vote in the assembly or in the senate or wherever you are elected to. But at the same time, um, everyone wants to hear more about science and when we look at drug policy issues it becomes more and more evident that we also should really look back and see what have maybe not just the US but other countries done, what is the experience, what has worked, what has not worked and what were the indicators of failure because not every project needs actually to do the same mistakes again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> easier said than done. And now it's become even more of a wisdom race with AI and synthetic biology, neurotechnology, all these pressing fields that um, the oops yeah. is not okay anymore. So science needs to really get into policy. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like, let's say until the last few years, there was absolutely no incentive for a researcher other than publishing in a 
scientific journal to actually make an effort to also talk about the research elsewhere. I mean, of course, it can help your reputation, but it's nothing that is incentivized at all in the scientific community. And that starts to change now as well. So slow, slow by slowly, and by joining the uh, UCSF Science Policy Group last year, I can really, um, I could really see how we can make these connections also, not just with the community that is affected by the policies, but actually to the policymakers themselves. And I think it's not on us, the researchers, to actually um, make those voices heard. There must be other channels as well. But for the most part, people can um, speak up in the city hall at a public hearing. But other than that, um, they are not really, like their perspective is really not seen. So it's again just about political context and less about the people. And yeah, when I started to volunteer with the Project Homeless Connect, I had the um, opportunity to meet Gavin Newsom. That was last year. He's now the governor and um, like a really influential person. And also visiting the Sacramento and the DC capital for an advocacy day as part of the science policy group or one of the professional societies was really eye-opening for me to see like how interested the staff of these offices or the people themselves are um, in having the information and to actually provide the information and break it down and then present it what they need. That's, that's a big task, but I think it's, it's on us, especially the young researchers who still have time and who are engaged to actually reach out and see what are the pending issues, also with climate change and so on, to bring in the experts. And it's, it's not on me to bring in all the expertise, but I can also refer people to experts in that field and to actually make these connections that we have more policy that is driven by science and less by political will. Yes, amen to that. Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Hell yes. Good luck, Ronses. And then the next slide is an example of this. So supervised consumption facilities, um, but in, in San Francisco, we're looking to pass from Sacramento the overdose prevention program. Right. So yeah, teach us about this. Yeah, so in, uh, uh, basically, you, uh, you've seen Gavin Newsom on the other slide. And he's now the governor, and the last governor, Cherry Brown, he has vetoed the um, bill on supervised consumption facilities for San Francisco on his last day of action. So that was really unexpected because it has pro um, like gone through the whole process and people have debated it and thought it was worth installing. And in San a supervised consumption facility is actually a place where people can use their drugs that are currently illegal under federal law um, in a safe space without being prosecuted for their drug use. And why we need that is we only like need that as long as we have people who are living on the streets, like people who are experiencing homelessness, and they have no um, like room where they can go or they don't have a place to go. And even again, like if people live isolated or on their own in a small apartment or maybe subsidized or whatever, then equally it would be very important to actually have a place where they can use the drugs in a safe space without uh, being at risk. Also, they're still at risk of overdose, but they have someone around that could react immediately to actually prevent deaths and also prevent other negative consequences from drug use. We think this is a step 
in the direction of safety and in the direction of yeah. um, healing and um, to provide uh, supervised consumption facilities and the um, overdose prevention programs, these are like steps in the direction of safety and healing. Right, and these are steps that have been taken by many countries, like um, not by many, but like 11 or 12 countries nowadays. That's a lot, yeah. Have them um, like officially legalized um, in, in the United States as of today, there is no um, like legal facility in San Francisco. There is an underground facility working that makes huge uh, progress and helps so many people. So it's really important. But um, that all is like underground work, so nothing is actually known about it. And the first data was presented at the harm reduction conference in Porto this year. So in Switzerland, totally different scenario. Um, uh, you may not believe, but we also have had like a um, like an open drug scene and a problematic um, heroin use for a bigger part of the population. So it was growing and we had it especially in Zurich with Needle Park and in Bern where people were traveling from over, all over Switzerland to these places to actually use drugs and stayed there and started selling drugs like it is to actually afford the drug use. But it was more like a revolutionary aspect thing and not so much um, driven by social inequalities like as you have it here. Nevertheless, um, people also were, of course, against drug use and they tried to shut down the needle park in Zurich, like repression, law enforcement, they shut it down. But then what happened was that people just moved somewhere else. So they moved to a closed train station and um, just the harm continued and people were just uh, getting into these lives and it was still an open street scene. And by enforcing the law more there, again, it went back to the city. So um, the politics had to take actions and that was the point, uh, first it was also like voted against but at a certain point it was not just the needle exchange and the substitution treatment like for opioid use disorder that came but also supervised consumption facilities so for the first time in 1986 obviously so that's more than 20 years, more than 30 years ago where the first one opened. And in the 90s, we had this again in Zurich. And so the Zurich side, they are looking now back to an experience of like 20 years, more than 20 years. And we had four sites and one of the sites has closed last year because there is no more demand. And yeah, that's, yes. wow. that's one of the points. And the, the graph here is just showing about the age. The yellow one are the age 21 till 30 who use this facility. So that went down yeah. because the whole context has changed, so people understood like heroin is a user drug, so no young people would start engaging with that drug, even if they're unhappy or whatever. They, they would use probably other drugs, but not the heroin, and of course they don't inject. And so the population that is like 51, 60, um, has gotten older, so people do not necessarily die from drugs um, and even injecting drug use anymore, but they get older and that face, like we're facing now new challenges on what does it mean for like um, senior homes and people who are carrying healthcare facilities there for these people. And another important finding is that at the, I was visiting two of the three safe uh, supervised consumption facilities in Zurich in March and they were lining up to get in the inhalation in the smoking rooms but the people who got, went to the injection rooms were i could count them on one hand huh? uh -huh. so less and less people injected drug but they found other ways that are more safe you have less um, like incidents like with your health and abscesses so they found different ways to actually use the drugs 
No OD deaths ever. The Never. In none of the overdose um, prevention sites or supervised consumption sites. So that's one of the main selling points right now because you have obviously overdose deaths in, in, yeah. In, yeah. in America, but that never happened and you can easily reverse them. In, in, in Switzerland you mostly do that with oxy oxygen, just uh, immediate action and here if you have the fentanyl also like um, people carry naloxone with them that can actually yeah. re reverse the overdose, yeah, yeah. really important. Yeah, the, the, we, the, the, we can't ignore and think that's going to be a better solution than actually dedicating um, resources and attention towards the healing process. Right. Yeah. And yeah. maybe one last note on the yeah. downside, also on the last sentence of the slide. Um, there was um, one paper that is really important that has analyzed the whole harm reduction system in Switzerland looking at the HIV and Hep C outcomes. Mm -hmm. And they were actually uh, looking if the harm reduction stuff would have been implemented two years earlier, could have prevented more than 3,000 HIV new infections and more than 1,500 AIDS deaths just two years earlier. Yeah. And that's like the whole umbrella of harm reduction offers, including supervised consumption facilities. And this is just like food for thought, like what can we do today and how much politics do we need to actually start implementing these things. Of course we want the cities to agree, the neighborhood to agree, we need to talk to everyone, we need to bring everyone on the table, but also what we need to do with the crisis is happening, action taken now. So That's, the, that's some people's parents or sisters or brothers or kids that are passing because of our um, not implementation of science-based evidence so yeah yeah and Johan Hari said it really nicely like the country of addiction is not sobriety but connection yeah because again yeah not all of us would probably fail with the drugs but those who are alone maybe and it's a first order issue of our social fabric and our family values not scaling over time right. promoting self-dealing rather than inclusive fitness um, and maybe that's a good um, wrap the, not the very last um, slide trust time transparency walk us through these yeah when we zoom in we also see these um, three important points and um, I would say like what we really need is trust um, like in these communities that we want to work with that we want to bring a change like for them we cannot decide for them we want to really know what the issues are and of course it needs time like time to either look at the decriminalization outcomes or the implications of legalization like everything that we bring in maybe as a pilot project or as a federal change needs time to grow and there are different measures and outcomes we can measure so that's really important and what we want like from all the sides is actually that people are transparent about both the risks and the benefits of either certain drugs or certain treatments that are available and importantly like for the current dialogues around drug policy is also by for example scaling up affordable housing and scaling up substance use treatment for many people who are affected there is still this big gap that they are not really used in our society so they have no one who says Alan great job tonight with this discussion great inputs whatever no one tells them that but what I see on the street when I talk to these people is that they have a lot of resources so we need to think about much more broader about like how to gain their trust but also how to actually create some opportunities for them to co-create programs or yes. actually spaces where they can become creative and do something that yes. actually brings them away meaning meaning in life yeah yeah, yeah. and there's the the 
um, that can potentially be integrated with the with the um, the new programs that are implemented is that um, some sort of a, like a co-creation of meaning something that 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 can be worked on actually when we talk to people um, out back on Stevenson Street here between market and um, uh, between sixth and seventh on Stevenson right by Market Street it's so frequent that people say I'm a philosopher I'm an artist or I'm a musician. Yeah. Um, I want. I, I'm, some of my music is on SoundCloud. These are like actually frequent things that you hear from people. So it's not like the, there's there is in, there's there's drive within to make stuff. It's like where is the co-creative addition? Yeah, um, and so yeah, we can all yeah help by building the fabric to help with that process. Ignoring it's not gonna yeah do anything. Um, it's gonna make it worse even more so, it's gonna make it worse. Um, a public health issue rather than a, um, focusing more on a criminal justice side of things. Um, and just like, you gave me examples before the show started about how people are like, like in the Philippines there's like a death penalty for, for drug use. Yeah. That's horrible, that's horrid, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are issues we're facing and we see also that the divide is getting bigger and bigger between like nations that really want to become more innovative or focus on public health approach. Canada is also going in that direction. US is watching a bit, but on the other side we have other countries where the issues are just as big as here or bigger and the population is dissatisfied and the measures that they take is actually to criminalize people even more and up to the de death penalty where it really also um, is at the intersection with human rights and um, there um, it's it's big on the like political discussions at the global level but still the whole UN is not really stepping in and like there is a lot of freedom for these policies to happen and again many activists and people who address it but there is no pressure or no incentive for them to change their policy because actually this is a policy that is accepted. And for us, I think it just makes us think more and more about in which society we want to live in, what we want to do about like substances and everything, that it's usually more the societal problems and not the, the drugs that are so bad that are driving yeah. people into the problems that they have. Yeah. So we need to maybe think about how to change something at the system level. Yes and be more accepting also towards these people who for whatever reason have decided to use drugs or can't decide whether they ha use or not anymore. So there- you, you, Tommy, don't use the word addict. Yes. You said um, people with a drug um, addiction is what you say. And actually I counter, I, I also mentioned yeah, people with a tech addiction or people with a yes. sugar addiction yeah, sure. instead of addict. Yeah. You know, life is all about addiction. We are addicted to different things. Without addiction, we're mindless zombies. <laughs> well, thoughts. Thoughts on that? I would just um, say, you have another thought? No. no. We're, yeah, we're going <laughs> to yeah, wrap. Yeah. That, um, I think those is what makes the poison. And I believe strongly in the fact that there is. Um, uh, kind of responsible drug use, like no matter whether legal, illegal drugs, tech or whatever, whatever addiction it is, um, when it is addiction, it is actually pathological. It means that you can't control it anymore. And the human brain is actually yeah. made to control things like our like frontal cortex, uh, like all the executive functioning. We are here to actually 
if it's not a simulation, we are here to actually make things work and to control things, to take control over our lives. And we may be able to give, out, give up control for certain experiences very like, purposefully, but we don't want to give up the control and all the health otherwise. So yeah. there it's about how we create like a society and also a system that is actually protective of these human values and treats every person with dignity and respect. Yes, yes. And this leads us to the last two questions. Do you think we're in a simulation? Good question. I hope not because I mean otherwise everything that we just went through and everything that I was working through over the past years would be something that someone made me think of and maybe a solution to a problem. But if it's a, a solution to the problem, which would mean that other people in, who are part of the simulation are going to be happier and mm. healthier, mm. then I'm fine with that solution mm -hmm. as long as the science and the evidence wins. And then the last question is, what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? Hmm. The most beautiful thing in the world? Well, for me, I think it's this thing called serendipity. Like all these moments that happen unexpectedly, all these connections we make with people or things that bring other things together that help us make sense of things. And again, if we're in a simulation, then we're probably highly rewarded and our dopamine is crazily up if we make these connections. But that's yeah, yeah. like experiencing these moments of serendipity and getting inspired day by day. That's what makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the more we head towards our North Star and we're aligned with that, the more it seems like there are serendipitous things that are happening. There's so much good stuff there. Larissa, it's been such a fantastic show. I feel, I feel super enlightened. Thank you for coming on and teaching us evidence-based drug policy. Thank you so much for thank having you. me, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. Huge thank you. Huge thank you. <laughs> and also, I'd love for um, others, thank you for tuning in. We greatly appreciate you tuning in, listening, watching. We would really appreciate it. We would love to have you talk more about evidence-based drug policy with your friends, your coworkers, family, people online, on social media. Get talking more about this. Also, get ready. Set your calendar reminders for the Global Drug Survey. November 1st is, yeah? Or even a bit earlier. Or even a little bit earlier. So set those calendar reminders. Make sure to tell your friends about that and get engaged with it. And also check out the rest of Larissa's links below as well. And also, uh, the, the also support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in. Support organizations like Simulation. Help us continue growing and, and prospering as well. Huge shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ron. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.